Hello and welcome to Keen on Keller. I am your host, Sherry Allman. I apologize for the little delay in getting this podcast out, but let me tell you why. The gentleman we interviewed has so much wonderful information to share that we decided to break it into two parts. The first part will be a little bit about his personal history and his service to the country. Um, Part two will be about his fascinating work history, which spans from the ground to outer space and beyond. The gentleman's name is Ed Erie Sari Jr. Ed turns 87 years strong on May 10th. I think you will find him fascinating on so many levels. He is a decorated veteran of the Korean War, or as he likes to call it, the Forgotten War. He is um, truly one of the smartest gentlemen I have had the pleasure of meeting. He is compassionate, witty, and in many ways, the best way I could describe him is like the Energizer Bunny. He is a lovable character that just keeps going and keeps giving. I sincerely hope you had the opportunity to listen to part one of Ed's interview. Now here is part two. Enjoy. This division called the Ephraim Division, it was a, uh, a division of ball aerospace. Um, in the, um, I guess the very early 70s, there was a, an engineer, in fact he was a scientist, that uh, came from Germany. He'd worked with uh, Siemens. And um, at that time, there were only three atomic uh, clocks, or atomic time and frequency standards, we called them. Rubidium, cesium, and hydrogen masers. And all of them were massive pieces of equipment. And uh, he said, I can build uh, a rubidium atomic clock and put it in about four inches cube. And uh, they, of course, they wondered what he was smoking, and maybe he had <laughs> what he was drinking. Right. So he came to this country with $200 in his pocket. I met him, and I helped him de- develop this division uh, called Ephraim. That's a, some German word that means something that I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it meant. And um, and uh, uh, I worked with him. I was working at the time with the, with, with the uh, engineering magnetics division, and so I helped him on weekends. I worked on weekends for him, Saturdays and Sundays, to help build up this division. Uh, then the chief engineer of the shuttle became the president of that division. He also was a German, and he hired a lot of other Germans. And uh, and then he hired me to come to that division and work with them, first uh, as a chief engineer, and then he wanted me to work in his uh, marketing organization because I'd helped build the division. Uh, so I became vice president of uh, marketing and sales for North America, South America, and Asia. That was. What I, and then I had a counterpart in London. He took care of the rest of the world. He could have the rest. He could have the rest? Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of territory. It is a lot of territory. Oh, my goodness. So there's a lot of traveling you know, mm-hmm. involved. And, uh, then um, <clears throat> uh, before going to Ephraim, I had worked with a company called uh, Nucleonic Data Systems. And uh, we were using nuclear gauges and computer control systems to automate steel mills and tinning mills. So we uh, got a contract with uh, Pittsburgh Steel in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. And it was a turnkey. That means you design it, you build it, you ship it, you install it, you bring it up online, you train the operators, complete turnkey. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a guarantee. The system was over a million dollars. And we told them that if it didn't save them that much the first year, they could give it back. Oh my goodness. I mean, that was, and then, uh, and they named me as a program manager. 
How many did you get back? Pardon? How many did you get back? Well, the first year after we got it installed and working, the first year it only returned 75%. And we said, do you want to give it back? And they said, no. Okay. Because it just got better after that. Right. But it, it was using nuclear gauges to monitor the amount of zinc that was being plated on the steel during, during the operating process where they could work 24 hours a day uh, galvanizing steel. And it turned that division from being in the red to in the division within two years, out to in the black within two years. Right. Nice. Yeah, well, it was the first time that any of that had been done, and we ran into a problem. At that time, at the Atomic Energy Commission, they would not allow us to put the uh, monitoring device over the zinc pot because it fell in. The whole zinc pot, molten zinc, would be uh, radioactive. This was highly radioactive. We had to carry Rinkin gauges to monitor the amount of radioactivity that we were personally taking. And too. once once you got to a certain level, you had to go get it. You had to go get another job and never work in it again because that was collective and stayed with you. So we had to check those in every week. Goodness. Every week we had to check the Rinkin gauges to to know how much uh, radioactivity we were actually experiencing. So that was a. Uh, now I'm going to try to describe this to you. We used an element uh, uh, called americium. That element emitted what was called a, a beta ray. And it emitted the beta ray down into the moving steel being having been galvanized. And then it caused the steel to uh, fluoresce, not bounce back, but fluoresce a gamma ray back. So we could have a gamma ray counter and count the gamma rays. And the amount of that count told us how thick the zinc was on the steel. Hmm, okay. Uh, wow. Uh, and uh, we were able to control the amount of zinc to one micron, that's a millionth of an inch. But the problem was, since we couldn't put it over the zinc pot, and you got to try to envision this, the zinc pot is as big as a 12-foot cube room full of molten zinc. And the steel goes down in it, comes up, and it has to go at least 100 feet in the air in a tower while it freezes. Then come down the other side, another hundred and so feet, and then beyond that, that's what we had to measure. We had to measure something and control it that already happened. How do you control something that already, already and the happened. steel is moving about 40 miles an hour. Well, oh. I got all the engineers in the room. <laughs> I pulled down the shade and I locked the door, and I said, nobody goes home till we figure this out, and nothing's off the board. Right. We got to talking about how a dog chases a rabbit. And the rabbit runs around the tree, the dog cuts him off. How does he do that mentally? Well, we realize he's taking trending data all the time, and he compensates mentally. Mm -hmm. So we said, let's write a computer, a computer algorithm of a dog chasing a rabbit, because it already happened, and he's gonna compensate. Right. So we said, how fast do we have to monitor in order to control something that already happened, and we do it incrementally, so if we do it fast enough, we can keep up with what's happening. Well, it meant we had to make one measurement every uh, uh, 10 million times a second. Oh my gosh. So y'all wrote the program. So we wrote the program, installed the thing, and we were able to control within a millionth of an inch. And, Problem and solved. That, and, that's, and that was the succeeding thing that made that whole thing. <laughs> a dog, a dog a chasing a, a rabbit. A dog chasing a rabbit. <laughs> Oh, Isn't that, uh, that's amazing how uh, you guys came up with that. 
Well, then, and so they made these gauges that they were selling all over the world. And uh, they had a problem at, in uh, South Africa, on a steel mill in South Africa. And uh, the chief engineer, the engineering manager, and the president were going to send six engineers down there to solve it. And I had just come out of aerospace, and I said, no, you don't need to do that. Let me set up a whole system in the lab, and I'll put in the problem, and then I'll solve the problem, and we'll tell them what to do. Because in space, you can't go up there and fix it. You've got to be able to, in fact, at the Space Center in Houston, around the Space Center was rooms which every contributor had a facility. And any problem, they would go to them and say, how do you fix this? Mm-hmm. So we learned to fix things in space by plan B, so to speak. In other words, everything was, re- is, was redundant. And so how do you switch off and switch around and switch around the problem? Right. So I said, let's do that right here. We learned it from there. Let's do it right here. So we set up the whole system in the lab, figured out what the problem was, which turned out to be a noise. It was the, 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 the operation was so noisy and electrically it was interfering with everything. Hmm. And so the noise was covering up the signal. So uh, we found that that's what's happening. So I said, look, take all the grounds off and tie them all together. And I, I sent, a, at that time, a telex, South Africa, go to an automobile shop and get a, a battery cable, but make sure it's braided. And then tie all of those grounds together on the system, tie them to that, graded, uh, that uh, braided cable, and tie the cable to the rail. And the noise went away. It was gone. The signals came through clean, so we never sent anybody down there. We did it all in the lab, just like you do in aerospace. So you see, aerospace told us a lot of things to do in our own our developments for you know, civil work. Hmm. You know, because it solved a lot of problems. We didn't have to send a single engineer. We told them what to do. They went and did it. Now at that time, of course, their day was our night. So after I told them what they should do, I said tomorrow morning. Only thing I want to see on the telex is hip hip hooray, and it was there. And it was there, <laughs> hip hip hooray. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, got any more stories like that? That's that's incredible. You have touched so much. I mean, you think well, about it from well, uh, this rubidium. We learned them. This was tactical, so we could fly it. We could put it. We put it on military aircraft, and we wanted secure communications because. Uh, as you may know, that uh, during Gulf Storm and those things, we were able to put bombs down a chimney. The aircraft were stealth, and they could not transmit. So the AWACS, which is an aircraft with that big dome up on the top, mm-hmm. could be 200 miles away, knew where the plane was, knew where the target was, and if they had uh, accurate and and very timely uh, signals. Uh, they would know exactly what was going on. So a plane could attack in stealth. The only time you know it was happening is when they when you heard them and they arrived and were gone. And we were able to put the but it was called the technique was called spread spectrum frequency hopping. Now here for a layman, here's what that means. Suppose you're watching your TV and I tell you, okay, and, and we're gonna synchronize our watches. So we're exactly at the second. And I'm going to tell you that the first second I want you on channel 10 and the second second on channel 20 and third one on 15 and we're going to hop all around the frequency band. See what we're doing? 
Mm-hmm. Now, if you keep in time with me, you'll never lose a signal, but nobody else knows where we are. They don't get any signal at all, see? Okay. That spread spectrum frequency hopping. Okay. So we did that on aircraft, and again, we did that at, at spe- we were switching at speeds of 10 million times a second, all over the frequency band. Just hopping, and unless somebody knew exactly where we are, they could never get the signals. So they were completely secure. The um, uh, we were able to uh, to hold those, but you could only do it with frequencies that were stable. Even with atomic clocks, we could only do it for like four or five hours. You could synchronize, and then and then they would be slipping frequency after four or five hours from theirs. But we learned how to uh, to compensate for that, and uh, I uh, was doing some work with Motorola, who uh, had their uh, communication systems say in an oil field. Well, their towers had to be in uh, some tall mountain. You could only get to the second week in July, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the rest of the season you couldn't. And they had a lot of problem with crystal uh, oscillators because they had to constantly go up and calibrate. Well, if we put an atomic clock in there, we could we could hold two cycles in ten million for for ten years. Well, they wouldn't have to go up there and compensate at all. Right. So I went to Motorola. Uh, we were selling them at the time some equipment that they had in the lab, and uh, I told them, "Look, I can take everything you got in that tall rack, put it in one five-inch drawer, and." Uh, You'll never have to compensate. You'll never have to calibrate because those frequencies will never change. Well, they didn't believe us. I went home and built one, and I shipped it to them and told them, try this out. And after a week, I called and said, how did it work? They said, we tried everything we could to make it fail. We couldn't make it fail. That turned into a multi-million dollar contract. Every year, we supplied them with those things for their simulcast because they could hold those frequencies and not have to calibrate. Then we turned to the military. They were using these clocks in the, in the, all sorts of uses in the military, but uh, they kept sending them every year back to calibrate. Well, we learned from the GPS, which these things are flying, that uh, we, could cal- we could calibrate those with a cesium at Falcom Air Force Base in Colorado, which now there's rubidium flying in the GPS. They're being disciplined, or calibrated, so to speak, right. from a cesium. So it looks like there's a cesium flying, not a, not a rubidium. And so we learned, to, to, we told the military, bring all those clocks back, and we'll put this disciplining in there, and then we can calibrate those things remotely. You don't ever have to send them back to calibrate. So every one they had, first, this is funny, see, we sold them the clock. Then we brought them back and sold them to them again with this little, <laughs> with this cal- with this disciplining. Right, <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, that's great. So now they never have to go up there. So uh, this rubidium atomic clock or whatever is we that? We call it a rubidium atomic uh, time and frequency standard. It's a standard. Okay, is currently in all the satellites that's that correct. are yeah all the GPS satellites today carry rubidiums, and that you, are being disciplined by a cesium at Fulcrum Air Force Base. And there are three cesiums, by the way. There are three of them, and they're voting. And this we learned to do, and we now have these on aircraft, you know, jumbo jets. They're voting. 
and they're constantly comparing with each other. And if one of them is different, they shut it off themselves. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. They'll shut it off, and the other two will continue to c- compare. You know, and if they get dis get out of compare, they shut all of them off. Hmm. But you see, it takes forever for that to happen. But these things, they're disciplined themselves. Hmm. They're constantly comparing, and when one gets out of sync, they shut it off automatically. That's fascinating. So you have no idea. I mean, well, you. What's the the timeline? What's the the length of life on something like this? Do we know? One of the things we learn about uh, rubidium clocks is they only get better with time. They're like a good wine. In fact, uh, the rubidium uh, physics package, we have to put in a test area, which we call an aging room. And uh, you we age these things, and you can't use them till they become at least a certain uh, uh, stability. Then we can use them. So we have an aging room full of physics packages that are being run constantly, and when they get good enough, we can use them. But you never, the thing is, we don't know what causes that, so you never know when they're going to be good enough. But once they're good enough, they only get better and better and better and better. And so it's only when the electronics around it fail, not the rubidium. Right. The rubidium doesn't fail. Oh, my goodness. And, and it's maintained its accuracy. Uh, I have put on many demonst- demonstrations and talks all over the country on how they work, what they work, how they work. By the way, there's something you might want to add, and we were talking about the Korean thing. Mm-hmm. I do. I have a PowerPoint presentation on the history of the Korean War that I give all around the Metroplex uh, on uh, Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said you're in the Rotary Club. I just gave one to the Rotary Club here in Keller. Okay. Is the Rotary Club you're in is is uh, our is our uh, mayor in that? Because mm. I gave one to a Rotary. Club. You know, I don't know if he is. If he's actually a mayor. I'm not a member yet. They gave me the application yesterday. They just invited me for lunch to to meet me. Okay. As a so candidate. I do that for you know those kind of clubs and. So PowerPoint on and, uh, the Korean War. A number. Of, I don't know if I am here though. Maybe they're over there on the I Love Me wall of uh, uh, plaques from. Uh, Grapevine High School, I give it on a Veterans Day. I've given that for uh, twice there. So you might want to put that in there. Okay, so PowerPoint on Korean War. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's called the History of the Korean War. History. You'd be surprised about that. It's amazing. You know, we've been we've been involved in Korean affairs since 1905. See, you, you just don't ever hear about it, like you said. Well... At that time, Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt, negotiated the treaties in the Sino-Japanese and the Russo-Japanese wars, and in that treaty he gave Korea to Japan, and Japan annexed it in 1910. So you can see when we occupy Korea, uh, Japan, we have to occupy Korea. Now the Russians needed Korea, because in the winter, Vladivostok, Russia, Vladivostok freezes it up. They have to use the ports up and down Korean Peninsula for their input-output. That's right. why they were so interested in, and that 38th War. parallel was set in the Potsdam Conference during World War II, in which we promised them half of Korea if they would declare war on Japan and help us with the invasion, which never took place. So they came in through Manchuria with 120,000 troops occupying north of the parallel. We came in from the south and occupied the south. Now there's the rub, communist north, capitalist south. 
you know, that's when, how it all started. Right, and I was kind of reading up on the Korean War just just because uh, I didn't didn't know a lot about it, and um, how much if you if you were I had a a puzzle in front of you, you would shift all the pieces this way, and then you shift them all back this way, and then you shift it them all like this way, and then a little here and a little there. It just this constant back and forth. Yeah, yeah they uh, it's called it, you know it's called <coughs> stalemate. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an area that uh, we called a punch bowl. There were mountains around it, but it was a little different. And that's where all troop movements came through. And so whoever owned the mountains had control. And we won and lost and won. And, you know, we lost 7,000 troops just trying to keep. That was Pork Chop Hill, Bloody Ridge, and um, uh, one other ridge. Uh, we well, you know Pork Chop Hill, and that's a name I've heard of. Pork Chop Hill. I haven't heard of Bloody Ridge. And Bloody Ridge, and then um, there was another ridge. Take it offhand. Mm. And they, that was the ones around the this little valley area, which we call the Punch Bowl. The only other Punch Bowl is in Hawaii, you know, where the where the, the World War Two cemetery is. Mm-hmm. You know, Ed. Uh, you know our new school here, the CTE school, the center for, all you know, the big CTE. With the different careers, chefs, engineers, oh, mechanics, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I wonder um, if they have an engineering school there. I need to look into that. Mm-hmm. But I, I was a, one of five founders of, uh, of the, uh, a school in Albuquerque uh, that was, uh, is now, you know, for uh, blue-collar workers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, we started a school in, uh, we started by teaching people how to solder water boards and mainly it was the governments uh, wanted to to get these things in the uh, you know the Indian areas and so on they wanted to open up schools there and uh, they wanted them to help with this manufacturing and so we opened up some schools there and from that we developed the uh, uh, it was I'll have to get you the name but now it's a big school uh, but I mean if we could get uh you know, it'd be nice to have you in front of these engineering students. Like my youngest daughter, she could she could sit here all day with you and, and listen to what you're saying. Seriously, because this stuff fascinates her. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering because I haven't really been into that CTE school. I'm wondering what's what it's all about. Now, let me see. I want to add one last thing on the clocks, and then I want to tell you about some other uses that we put these things in put uh, control systems. My PE license is control systems engineering. Okay. My professional engineering mm-hmm. license. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was a, um, uh, you know, the the telephone system in this country was run by, managed by one clock called the Strata One Clock. And um, I sat down with a, well, in fact, we, even, we never sat down. We stood up and went toe-to-toe for an hour or two talking about the use of rubidiums to replace the stratum one clock using discipline rubidiums. And uh, after I, uh, his name was Zampetti, after I worked with him, he took me and introduced me to his boss, and he says, these are the people that are gonna replace our stratum one clock. I mean, it was a done deal. <laughs> so I sat down with a, uh, after we did all the technical work with one guy in one room in Columbus, Ohio, and we shook hands, and I went home with a $10 million contract in my back pocket. Oh, my gosh. To, to put this rubidium clock into every cellular telephone base station that AT&T owned. And that's why you don't lose your call as you're driving around town. And those that 
gets shifted from station to station to station without losing. Before that, people dropped their call. The calls got dropped, uh -huh. and then dropped, and then you call again, and it got dropped. You moved someplace, other they got. Now these things are, you know, the stability. You know, as we call it parts of ten to the minus eleven a, a year, uh, which means that, you know, it takes ten years to lose a couple of cycles, and uh, so that's why you don't lose your telephone call as you wherever you're traveling, because of the, the the stability of these clocks and frequency standards. So you went, you were awarded the contract to put those in all the AT and T cell towers. Mm -hmm. And what year was that? Well, when, I don't know if I wrote the year when it down. very first started. Well, you see, when we developed. Uh, cellular phones, it was called PCS, Personal Communication Systems. And see, we wanted to be able to contact anybody, anywhere, anytime. But, not where we could listen, where we could talk. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, you know, so it started out, it was called PCS. You know, and, you know, we, we now know it as cellular telephones, and you, mm -hmm. you know, all the telephones that you got now. But when we first started, that's what it was. Uh, they were called PCS, and it was to give people able to contact anybody, anywhere, anytime. Hmm. Wow. Gosh. And then, uh, and then later on, you know, that the third world didn't have it. So Mag, uh, 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 yeah, it was Magnavox. Start a program called uh, um, the name of the atom. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but they wanted to to have uh, be able to to pro provide uh, communication cellular telephone to the third world, and they uh, I mean it was going to cost billions. It was going to cost billions, and so they contracted with all kinds of companies to take part, and the whole thing went down the tube. After all the investments. It went down the tube. Oh my gosh! It just—they just never could make it happen. But the idea that remember—I'm trying to remember the name of the element, but the element has uh, 77 uh, electrons <laughs> around the nucleus, and, and uh, they were going to have to put up 77 satellites to cover the whole world. You know, now you hear some of these companies talking about using aircraft to do that. You know, while the aircraft is flying at destination. They use it to do the communication, and another one takes over, and then another one takes over, and they, you mm -hmm. know, so they can continue to provide communications Service. throughout the world. Right? Yeah, that's what it was all about. Now, that's not what they is that what they do today? No, that thing failed. Now today, there's all kinds of small things that are started. Like I said, aircraft. They're trying to use aircraft. So, well, that's what I was wondering. So they're, they're using the air, they're utilizing the aircraft today they, to continue the yeah, service. Somewhat. I don't know how successful that really is. Right. Uh, oh, my goodness. So that rubidium goes a long ways. It goes a long ways. And remember this. It's like a good wine. It right. Only, it only gets better with time. <laughs> only better with time. <laughs> that is amazing. Now, with the uh, with the PE license, I uh, <clears throat> while I was working for Engineering Magnetics in California, I uh, took some graduate courses at UCLA. And at that time, we were just getting into uh, CPUs, computer processing units. Intel had just developed the first one called the 4040. I don't know if you ever heard of that or not. Then it became the 8080. In other words, the first computers we had were 88. It only had 80 kilobits in the, you know, now we got mega. Right. Well, <laughs> the, the, uh, so I took this, uh, took a class at UCLA and um, 
there was no test, but you had to write a term paper. In the end, you have to apply a CPU in some sort of an application. This was the this was my term paper. It was called Supervisory System Programmable Remote Station Utilizing a Microprocessor. That was my term paper. Well, I got an A, but it was a little teeny, teeny, tiny A. I could hardly see it at the top of the paper. And it made me mad for paying for all of that. And all I got was this little teeny... So I published it and sold it for $30 a copy until it paid for my course and everything. And uh, uh, I sold a ton of those things for 30 bucks a piece. <laughs> right. And that was my term paper. <laughs> You've been making money off your term papers. That's hilarious. <laughs> Little I, In fact, I, uh, one of the places I, uh, I was at, Harza Engineering, they're in Chicago, a worldwide engineering company that does trillions. And um, I got to see the top engineer in that. And, and, and uh, it was all, while I was seeing him, and he, I asked him, I said, you know, there's a, there's 10 dozen people sitting out there in the lobby to see you. Why did you see me? He said, because of what's on your business card. What was that? Well, PE. Oh, okay. You know, in this. Special engineer. Yeah. And so while I was there, I sold him 30 of these things before I left the office. You sold him 30? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. You're a consummate salesman, too, and a professional engineer. <laughs> That, oh, was, that was kind of funny. That is funny. Before I left his office, I sold him 30 of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did you get the job? Were oh, you yeah. there Were you there for a job interview? Oh, no, no. I, I, you I were was, just... No, we were, we were doing SCADA. Remember that guy talking about SCADA here? Mm. Oh, yeah. We were, we were doing SCADA, uh, uh, putting these supervised control data acquisition systems in, super, in the electric utilities. Oh. And that, so I was there to talk to him about using SCADA in their systems all around the world. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> and I learned a really interesting thing. We developed this beautiful system, beautiful SCADA systems, and I took it out to sell it. I mean, you know, the design, I was going to go out and sell it. So I went into this utility, and in five minutes, they threw me out on my ear. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I did. Maybe I step on somebody's dog or kick the cat or something. Now I went to another one, same thing happened. So I had a friend in the utilities, and so I called him, and I said, I don't know what's happening. I mean, this thing is beautiful. It made, it does all kinds of stuff. Right. And uh, he said, well, and I told him, he said, I'd have kicked you out too. And I said, why? Well, he said, you used the word telemetry instead of telemeter, and that tagged you as aerospace. Oh. And he said, in the utilities, he said, you guys in aerospace only have to operate up the impact. We got operated all kinds of weather and all kinds of things. So we can't use your stuff. Uh, one word. One word. So I said, you know, that's a thing called parlance. So I learned, I got a utility book and I learned their words. The next place I went, the guy talked to me for four hours. Mm -hmm. You know why? And he's, he was a gray-headed old guy. And he said to me, I remember this in Portland. He said, before you leave, would you mind visiting with me? I said, sure. And he said, uh, so I went to visit with him. He said, you know, you're a fairly young guy. He said, how'd you learn all this stuff? Well, I hate to tell him, I just read your book. I, I learned the parlance, you know, I'd learned your parlance. From then on, wherever I went, I learned their parlance. And you never have to provide them with any kind of support for your, uh, you know, your competence. You talk their language. You know, when in Rome, mm -hmm. talk as the Romans. That's right. 
So I did that in railroads, I did it in water resources, in all of these places. I learned their parlance. In fact, I got invited to Los Angeles Department of Water, uh, Metropolitan Water District, to talk to their engineers. They brought 50 engineers into the room at one time. I said, what am I going to tell these guys? Well, I had already learned their parlance, <laughs> and they really ate it up. You know, that, that is such a, that's very valuable information. It is valuable information. Life, life learn, skills right there. Learn the parlance. You don't have to prove your, your uh, competence at all, because wow. you talk their language. Sure. So uh, I used that uh, in uh, railroads. I uh, went to um, GE's locomotive plant in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm going to tell you about that trip. It was in the winter, you know, and planes wouldn't land and all this stuff. But I finally got there and uh, put uh, uh, some uh, uh, battery control systems and uh, and various other power supplies on the locomotives. Uh, I did that also for Amtrak. And uh, there was a company in Long Island Railroad called the Long Island Railroad. And they were having a problem. They had those old, old, old systems where it was called third rail. 600 volt DC third rail, in other words, the power ran down the middle of the mm-hmm. track and then they, then they had the ground was on the track itself. Well, after years and years, they got dirty and dirty and calcul- and, and they started flashing over. And when they flashed over, it set the car on fire. Oh my goodness. And when it set the car on fire, it blew out all their power and then, and they lost their communications and they couldn't tell anybody the car was on fire on the track. Mm. So they had a lot of problems with that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I found a device. You know, these guys were, they're railroaders. <laughs> they're interested, you know, their work is in D.C., which is slow, slow, slow. They talk in milliseconds, where we talk in microseconds. So I built a unit that um, would detect a flashover, would switch off their communications until the flashover was over. Then it would automatically hook them back up, and now they had communications and they could call. And we put those on those cars, and let me tell you, I could ride those Log Ale Railroad anywhere I wanted to go for no cost. <laughs> <laughs> Free to you. Well, you know, they, to me it was like stepping back in the last century because it was, it's, that's the difference between electrical and electronic. You know, electrical is mostly, you know, slow relays, you know, that takes a millise- 100 milliseconds to switch well, by that time, you know, you got a fire, mm-hmm. and uh, so it it stopped all the fires on the at least from the communication standpoint. It hooked their it's uh, so then from that we developed a thing called a recloser. We put in the utilities. Have you ever heard of the new the Northeast blackout mm-hmm. that happened years ago? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing was happening was is that everything that failed caused the next level, then the next level, and the next level, and it went faster than they could control it. So we developed a controller that would detect those, shut off things until the flashover was by, and reconnect. That's why we called it a recloser. In the old power stations, when they wanted to bring on another generator, a guy sat there with a bat handle switch, watching a wheel go around and around, you know, watching the frequency. And then he tried to switch when it came across. Well, it would, you know, it would switch, yeah, but it would shake the whole building and everything because that other generator was not in sync. And the oh whole building gosh. would shake, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it would t- take them right offline. Oh, my goodness. Well, this thing could automatically switch those on when they were in sync. So you never saw it happen. Mm-hmm. See, the utilities have, uh, you know, uh, uh, what they call spitting reserve. Because, you know, during the day, uh, there's all kinds of 
levels of need for power. In other words, people come home at night, mm -hmm. turn on the lights, turn on the gas, turn on this and that. Right. So there's a big demand. Well, if they're not ready for a demand, they have this spitting reserve that jumps in, and it would only jump in in sync. It wouldn't be one of those things that shook the whole building, shook the whole building when, it, when that guy grabbed the bat handle and tried to switch, the, oh switch the thing on. So, <laughs> I mean, they see there's just so many applications for control systems, you know, to automatically do things that we're trying to do manually and you can't do. Right. Um, hmm. So electric, the electric utility, they put systems in Los Angeles Department of Water and Power right downtown LA. They have what they call, the like New York, they have towers, some twin towers. Every one of them has enough power to, to supply like 35,000 homes. Well, they wanted to do the power control from the engineering building, which is a long ways away. Mm -hmm. So we put in the control systems in there and they could operate everything right from their control room in the engineering building, operate all that power. Did the same thing at uh, Los Angeles Water uh, uh, Power and Light and New Orleans Power and Light. We put these automatic systems in. But one of the problems we had, you know, we're not GE. We're not the company I was working for. It was a small company, but you know, we had this really accurate stuff. So uh, there was a competition going on for uh, Arkansas Power and Light. So I did a lot of work with those people down there, and boy, they really liked the system. And uh, when they got ready to sign over the contract, they had to make a presentation to their management. Well, GE was competing, Westinghouse was competing, you know, all of these big and us. And they wanted us. And their top guy said, what? Are you telling me that you're going to give a contract to a company that I've never heard of? Mm -hmm. It was over. Wow. It was over. That mm -hmm. was the end of it. One guy. One guy. Make a statement like that. Right out the door you go. You know, I did. I was telling you about this controller that, uh, that I built a controller for the utilities to do switching on your lines around. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, uh, this controller was for motors. That this motor safety. I tell you about the the um, reducing the energy conservation. Well, GE and Westinghouse and. Uh, couple other companies back engineered in other words reverse engineered the device I developed that I had this contract with NASA for right they took it and reverse engineered and then came into competition and um, uh, they and they literally said to me uh, you know I had a I had a patent I was trying to defend my patent right they said to me hey uh, and I'm one guy I'm a little company I started a little company of my own called Iveco, Improvement Via Electronics Company. And um, so I started to, in competition with these things. And uh, this guy from uh, GE called me up because I want to sue him. Oh, he said, I've got 50 engineers working on this. How many do you have? Me. Me, you know. but I'm worth so they, your 50. <laughs> so they stole it. They stole oh. the design, you know, and... Uh, Run us out of business. That's wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. So your patent didn't help? Nope. So I went to Germany and Japan and got cut patents for there. Okay. Well, good for you. <laughs> you found a way. Oh, so GN, so they re reversed engineered yep. your and product. I, and yeah, then I was working with a guy from NASA. His name was uh, Frank uh, Nola. And um, 
you know, he's the guy that uh, uh, put the uh, lunar rover, and uh, they had developed some of this stuff, and so I got, that's where I got the prime time. But when I, I wrote an uh, unsolicited proposal, I have a copy out there in the office, I should have showed it to you, unsolicited proposal to NASA for putting these in controlling the electric motors. And uh, they took it, copied it, and ran out on bid for it. So I, I sued NASA. And, um, uh, and uh, did you win? Well, here's what happened. Finally, they came back to me and they, they're in their lawyers and said, well, your suit was untimely. Now you tell me what untimely means. It was untimely. <laughs> so that, that was so that's when I sued NASA. And I went to the uh, senator, I was in California, I went to the senator and I told him what happened. And I said, all I want you to do is make one phone call. Just call him up and tell him you're working on a case. He did. The next day they offered me a prime contract. Mm-hmm. Very, <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm So we put it on railroads, it we put it in uh, utilities, uh, we put it on, uh, well, it was a company that did, uh, was the pipelines, they were cutting pipe in uh, a big company and, and they were having to measure and all this stuff. So we put a control system to automatically measure any size they wanted. They could run that stuff through and cut, 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 cut. And uh, the whole thing was automatic, it was for oil companies. Mm -hmm. So we did oil company work, we did uh, locomotives, we did, uh, you know, that Long Island Railroad, um, and the California Aqueduct. There's two pump stations, one called Pear Blossom and one called A.D. Ed Edmonston. The A.D. Edmonston was a pump station that had 14 80,000 horsepower pumps that were used to pump water over at the Hatchapies and down the other side for the California Aqueduct for Southern California. And uh, they only could run it at night because it took nearly all the power out of Hoover Dam to oh. run it. My goodness. <laughs> well, we put a control system in there where they could switch those on in unison or together or one at a time or halfway or whatever they want. And uh, at the time, Reagan was governor of uh, California. Mm -hmm. And so we were there for the ribbon cutting when they put in the control systems oh, for those. Cool. And then we put in another system at Pear Blossom. So it's water resources. Then uh, uh, when I was in Albuquerque, uh, we uh, they wanted to automate their water system. So I wrote the pro engineering proposals and we got that contract and put all Albuquerque water system under automatic control. Now on the, as you know, out on the east side, those five volcanoes, you know, they say yep. that they're extinct, they're not. When we pumped the water out of there, they had to cool it before they could put it into the water system. And still today, that water's too hot to put into the system the city's water system they oh. have to cool it first so i, I remember they one blow year, any day well <laughs> they have little tremors every now and then you know right I, mean, uh, I think those things could come back i remember <coughs> once a bunch of university students went up there at night they took truckload took truckloads of tires and threw them in there and set them on fire and all this smoke started <laughs> Oh, and everybody panicked. Yeah, the I city sent that. fire trucks out, you know. I mean, what are they going to do, put out a volcano? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need a few more fire trucks for that. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> I do remember that. Oh, my gosh. Uh -huh. 
Gosh, panic everybody. Uh, they they got in quite a bit of trouble, I think, yeah, for doing did. that, too. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we get, you know, we tried some stunts <laughs> like that, um, friend, some friends of mine, and, and we got a little jammed to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> High school, and, you know, we were... Every once in a while, every once in a while, you see smoke. Eat <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of bad stuff. Oh my gosh! So you you have worked with so many. A lot of them were Fortune 500 companies, right, Ed? Yes. So you touched military, aerospace, commercial, yeah. industrial, and, and you know, all the disciplines you talked about, from locomotive to water plants. And um, after retiring, uh, I worked for SCORE. You know, SCORE is a Service Corps of Retired Executives here. Right. And uh, we helped a lot of companies around town uh, get get started and, and get into business, and that turned out to be that turned out to be really successful. In fact, some of the companies afterwards hired me as a consultant, a candy company, a, a machine shops, a, a, a number of uh, places where uh, you know. And uh, I still today do uh, something uh, uh, called flow charting. You know, as companies grow, they begin to um, take on something new and something new, and they just try to fix it, mix it in with their business, and it gets very inefficient. Mm -hmm. And if if an independent can come in and flowchart the operation, in other words, start from a purchase order and follow it all the way through, you begin to just it's just obvious where the inefficiencies are, where duplications are, why you're doing rework. Uh, before retirement, by the way, one of the one of the other things in in this professional engineering, uh, we um, I went to a company in uh, uh, Magnavox in uh, Buffalo, New York, and learned about something called world class manufacturing. And um, uh, this is a technique for efficient manufacturing. Uh, I did, I I developed a little formula that said WCM equals JIT plus TQM, and that means world-class manufacturing equals just-in-time and total quality management. And the way you do that is, the old way was that uh, if you built a system, you built all these modules and put them in stock. And then when you got an order for a system, you pulled these modules out of stock, put them together, and delivered a system. And uh, depending on what modules you pick would be what goes in the system. Problem with that was that if you made an error you built a thousand errors and put them in stock. And you didn't know that error was there until you start to use them. Now you're doing rework. You know, now you got holdups and delays and, and rework. With world-class manufacturing, they, they have a, a model that says build some of everything every day. So you build the whole thing at once. And at every station, right behind that is a quality control. He's controlling what just got done, and then it goes to the next station, and then another guy's checking that, so that you're make you're correcting as you build. And uh, some of that was uh, using these uh, microscopes that have two lenses, and you're looking at perfect one, and you're comparing it with an, uh, one just built, and yeah. you can see the mistakes. Oh as I, I remember once we were using they were using a control system in a company that was. Uh, Manufacturing and they had big boards, uh, circuit boards, and they were plugging in parts, so would go wave soldering, and then the whole board comes out at the end. And um, they this one was for drilling the PC boards. They automatically, multiple drills come down on the board and build them all 
you know, perfectly right where the lands are and all that stuff. And all, and all of a sudden it was breaking bits and all this, all this kind of stuff. Well, they sent technicians over and they couldn't solve it. And they said, we want your chief engineer here tomorrow. That was me. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> I looked in one of those things and I, it was just so obvious. One diode was backwards and the whole thing went to pot. Oh my gosh. So change one little diode and the whole thing just worked like silk. You know what? I could write my ticket after that. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my gosh. We would be remiss, I think, Ed, if we, uh, since we've talked about your little bit of your growing up and your history and your, your great service to our nation and your your worth ethic and your great contributions there, but you've also always found time for something else, and that's... Yes. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I worked for uh, 28 years in California and also here uh, with the uh, ICUs, hospital ICUs, the homebound uh, convalescent uh, homes, you know, the... Um, independent living and, and those sort of things F for the elderly and the terminally ill uh, as a uh, extraordinary minister of the Holy Eucharist in the Catholic Church and um, <clears throat> I, I've uh, you know it was uh, it was great great reward uh, these people uh, began to look forward to you coming to visit with them and um, uh, especially I followed several people all the way to their final end uh, one in well, two or three, but, but uh, one in particular that had brain cancer, and he lasted three years. He did surgeries a number of times, uh, but it finally did him in. But I spent every week. I spent time with him, at, you know, all the way to to the very end. And I he had a little dog, one of those uh, wiener dogs. I don't know what you call them. Dotson. And uh, and. Uh, one day, uh, I had I had gotten called to the ICU. Somebody was dying, and they wanted a priest. And I went to one of the uh, parishes and got a priest and took him there. And then, uh, before taking him back, I said, "You know, I have to visit this gentleman that has this brain cancer." I said, uh, "Before I take you home, do you mind if we drop by there?" So we went. We went there together. And uh, while we were there, we got in a circle and uh, prayed the Our Father and His dog got in the circle too and woofed lightly all the way through that prayer and I told him that's the only dog I know that can say the Our Father. <laughs> oh my gosh. Very loyal pet. Yeah and there was another that's one that had a dog too and he knew when it was Sunday. He said at 10 o'clock on Sunday he always went to the door and waited for you to show up. He knew it was time for the visit. Right. Yeah it was it was very rewarding. People are so, you know, when they're in those conditions, uh, sometimes they can be funny. Mm -hmm. And one lady said to me, <clears throat> uh, you know, I have a sore throat today. And, you know, when you have a sore throat, you don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you uh, also... Then, uh, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, uh, after retiring, I uh, uh, worked as a uh, prison minister in the uh, county, Tarrant, Tarrant County jails and also state penitentiaries. For about 15 years I did that. I just quit that last year. Did for how long? 50 or 15? 15. 15 years after I was here. 
How was we've that? Been, we've been here 30 was years. Was that a... Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you an experience I had. I, I had to go to the VA hospital in uh, Dallas, and I was riding in TRE. And uh, a young gentleman got up, and he came to my seat, and he said, aren't you Chaplain Ed? I said, yeah. He said, I took your class in Tarrant County Jail. He said, I still carry the certificate around everywhere I go, because these were certificate classes. And he says, I, uh, I, I drew a 12-year sentence, and they let me out in two. And he said, I'm going to see my parole officer right now. But I just want to tell you thank you. He said, to turn my life around. One guy. There probably was others. Right. But, uh, you know, to know that that's the kind of good. Mm-hmm. Now, the opposite also happened. You know, the class I, uh, ta- I taught several. One uh, we called uh, Make a Lifelong Change and Never Come Back. That was one. And then I taught a couple on uh, uh, faith and understanding instead of faith and reason, because reason you can twist. But understanding is different, faith and understanding. So I taught two of those. And um, so I was, and, uh, and I told them, guys, if you take this class, you'll never come back. And uh, one guy did. And the pod officer said to him, I thought you took that class. He said, I did, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> like it was going to work, and not him. Right, right. <laughs> I'm going to retake it again. Yeah, he said, oh, I did, but it didn't work. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, was kind of, that was kind of funny. Oh, gosh. But it did work for a lot of those a lot of those guys. And then I, I was working on working at one penitentiary down here in uh, south of us, near Midlothian. Midlothian. And um, uh, the reason I liked it is because everyone there was uh, within the last, few, last five years of getting out. And that was a really good time to, get a, you know, sure. have these classes. And, uh, and and it was very successful with these guys because, you know, and I would tell them in these classes, look, uh, I'm going to tell you things you never heard before. You know, nobody's ever told you this stuff. And uh, afterwards I asked them, you hear any of that before? Never heard any of that before. Because the idea is, you know, we can read the Bible and we can go to listen to homilies and sermons and all that, and it's all salient. It's all along the top. It doesn't tell you what really happened, you know, what, what really took place, mm-hmm. you know. And when you start talking about that and make people real, you know, the for instance, the Old Testament, it's written by people with a mentality a whole lot different than today. You have to get into their mentality and see what did they, why did they write this and what was going on. Right. And you find out that, you know, it becomes everyday life. Then as soon as you can make people make things real, people begin to understand. You know, True. and I learned that in classes. Third, two things I learned: make it real, and number two, if you don't get questions, they don't get it. You got to have questions. Very true. Uh, you know, every all my life I did things that uh, I wanted to do, and I told always told my children. You know, you need to uh, develop what you like because you're going to have to do it for a long time. And uh, the only thing they ever told me is they said, well, we don't want to be engineers. You have to work too hard. But, you know, it was fun. All of it was, you know, you learn as you go. And uh, to to see the result of what you did is what you accomplished. I was going to say, look at everything that you've touched. And I'm sure your children have got to be amazed that, you know, Satellite, the space shuttle. There's, there's a you know cell phone tower. To think that wow, my dad or grandpa or great grandpa had, had a little piece of all that. That's very exciting. 
it, it has been very enjoyable too. And I saw my motto is have fun every day, all day long, not just for <laughs> moments. <laughs> right. And you can even do that in the engineering world. Well, you know, I also have a model that says nobody gets off easy. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Ed, you have lived and continue to live a very full and fulfilled life, fulfilling life. I mean, you've, you've touched so many. So I'd like to thank you for sharing your birthday and your wonderful personal history with us today. Uh, you have done so much in your 87 years that it's hard to give each of your accomplishments the time that they deserve in this short interview. So it has been an honor to get to know you better and meet your lovely wife, Carol, and hear and share your stories and, and just getting to know you in person. I would also like to thank you for your service in person. Thank you for your kindness, indeed. And that brings us to the end of Ed's interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to like our Facebook page and website at www.keenonkeller.com and subscribe to the podcast. We would love for you to send us an email or a message with who you would like to hear on Keen on Keller or what makes you Keen on Keller.